coming at you from Handsome Headquarters here in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm Lee Sanger Golden, and you're listening to me talk on the internet. We're joined remotely by our favorite liberal guilt radio co-host and correspondent, Ben. How you doing, sir? I'm good. I like, you know, months ago when you used to play the intro music that everyone else hears, it really gives me, it's like, do, 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 you know, it gets me all jazzed up, but you know, I'm, I'm all right. I play, that, I play that NFL music. Yeah, just something to like, you know, to get the... To get the, I don't want to say juices flowing, flowing, but the blood flowing. The intellectual blood flowing, intellectual juices flowing. Mm -hmm. We used to record this all on one board. And so I had, uh, just to get a little inside baseball, we had, you know, our audio going in. And then I had a separate channel for the music. So we could listen to it live and get that kind of like live on tape radio feel. And then I also remember I had a separate wireless mic to do the phone calls, so I could take that mic and go into a different room and and do the phone calls. Mm -hmm. so, that was now, a lot of fun. So we had like we finally after a few episodes of of what we're calling season sixty nine, which is the last year, we did like forty episodes or so over the last uh, last uh, year. And happy New Year, by the way. This is our first time. Oh, happy New Year in twenty twenty one. And we finally got everything set up and I had this like sweet audio setup that I liked and I had all my my boards and my my potentiometers and moving around knobs and our headphones and microphones and mic stands. And then the lockdown happened and we're just on fucking Zoom. So just to be clear, a potentiometer, that's a real thing. Yes. OK, um, look it up. And then Google will say, did you mean? And then it'll give yeah. you the right spelling. <laughs> did you mean you are not living up to your potential? Click here for self-help, <laughs> $3.99 a month. You're yeah, like, the, fuck that shit. The first 10 listings will be for um, sponsored content for ways to make you feel bad about yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and after that, you'll find out what the fuck a potentiometer is. Mm -hmm. but anyway, it's the new year. I'm happy to report that both my wife and I have tested negative for, for COVID. And the baby, we checked on the heartbeat at the doctor. We we're finally able to go to the doctor last week. Baby seems okay. We're going in for some more uh, tests and such this Thursday, just to make sure everything's in order as we approach the due date, uh, which is in a couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, everything is on track uh, in those regards. Um, how are you doing, sir? Um, pretty good. I think we talked uh, 10 days ago. Um, mm -hmm. I think this is the last time we talked. I've it's just this this circle of life, the ending of one generation of my family and the beginning of another with the six day overlap. Damn! Wait, someone passed and someone was born. My sister had a kid on the nineteenth at two a.m. and my grandfather passed on the twenty sixth or seventh. Damn! In the at around probably two a.m. too. So. And it was, you know, he was almost 102. I've had probably some of the most eye-opening and profound conversations with him and also my past grandmother. You know, it's few people, few and far between that I saw in my life where we can spend three to five hours talking about something without any interruptions. You know, we'll, we'll take breaks, walk around, but mm -hmm. there won't be distractions. We won't even really look things up. We'll get back to them. And so I always remember that, but, uh, it was his time. He is. He was ready to go, and he didn't want to 
try to fix things to to keep going. And I think right. after 102 years, that's fair. That's a so good it kind of felt. I don't want to say relieving, but um, natural, natural, and something that there's so many times the last 10 years where I thought about it. Mm-hmm. So I've almost like you know I've already, uh, in a sense, like lived with his passing. I've cried about it. I've laughed about it. I've written yeah. obituaries about it, eulogies. And then it happened. And then it was like, the, my reaction to it at the time was totally different than I thought. But yeah, circuit passed. Yeah. And then my sister got her little kid. So that's good. I mean, it's, yeah, it is totally the, the circle of life. So first of all, I think we should, we should uh, dedicate today's episode to your Zadie. What was his name again? Isidore Shapiro. Isidore born, Shapiro. He was born during the second wave of the 1919-1918 pandemic and passed in the second wave. Maybe it was a third, but let's just go second of both of them. So he saw both pandemics? Yeah, he was born in February 1919. Fu- which was what a, a third, fucking champ. He, he was born into like one pandemic and then died in another, but fucking made it through, basically made it through it all. Uh, yeah saw the end of the saw the end of the tunnel at least here he at least lived to see the vaccines popping in so um let, we're dedicating today's episode to isidore shapiro um he has passed so too shall this pass for us all can he ratzon so may it be god's will shabbat shalom shabbat shalom may his memory um, abide with us as a perpetual blessing as my rabbi used to say thank you and congratulations to your uh, to your sister and your your niece or nephew. Uh, niece. <laughs> you know, like I haven't I haven't checked yet. <laughs> I, I, I pulled up the blanket. I never remember which is which. Mm, yeah, I have to think of second. I'm like, uh, like I'm an uncle, which I think means that they're a niece naturally. Um, so that's great. So basically, thanks. Thankfully, your family has you know there. It's a it's sort of net neutral transition here. Your sister had. Uh, your sister had uh, had another one in the bullpen so that when your uh, gramps Zadie was relieved from the mound, he got a nice round of applause as they brought in the, the closing pitcher. It's basically what mm-hmm. you're saying. So I'm wearing, exactly. my baseball, I'm wearing my baseball I'm, cap today. So I'm like everything, including life passages and death. It's like, well, let's think of it in terms of baseball. Sports, sports, sports. Yes. Um, great. So, um, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, it, it sounds like uh, your family is, is in a good place dealing with that and healing from that. So um, great. Now, there's a lot of stuff on your mind and on my mind, just to sort of set the stage where we're at at the opening of 2021. Um, this week on Wednesday, um, we're supposed to be voting in the Senate to like, or we're supposed to be confirming Joe Biden in the Senate on Wednesday as the um, as the the president, and um, this is like supposed to just be a procedural thing. It's all everything's decided. All the votes are certified from the various states. So it's basically supposed to be the vice president saying, "Hey, we got the envelopes with all the votes. This guy's going to be the next president." Blah blah blah. Um, when Obama was reelected in 2012, and they they voted him in in 2013 in the electoral college on you know uh, this week. Uh, eight years ago, um, he was, uh, it took 23 minutes, 23 minutes, because it was just like, yep, okay, here we go. 
And uh, I believe it took about an hour last time. The longest it's taken in recent history was 2005 because uh, Barbara Boxer and one other Democratic senator um, did basically what some of the senators are doing now, which is object to the results because of some um, hanky-panky that they alleged in Ohio. Um, but this is going to be the most disruptive in modern history, probably since 1876 or whenever that was, um, the last election that was this disputed. Um, so basically about 10 or 11 senators, including Ted Cruz, have basically said, we're going to object to this. So we're going to see some, some hellfire in the Senate floor on Wednesday. And then also we're going to see um, Trump is, is promising there's going to be like the Proud Boys and everybody's going to take to the streets and sort of have these crazy protests. So everyone's sort of gearing up for like possible violence and destruction in D.C., which is typically sort of um, shielded away from from this kind of stuff. There's sort of, you know, pretty strict gun laws in D.C. and most of the sort of havoc, the Antifa havoc and Proud Boy havoc takes place in in more cities like um, you know, out here in Los Angeles or in New York, et cetera. So the stage is set there. Meanwhile, there's this battle over relief checks for COVID. Um, you know, the hard, the hard right or hardliners um, like the Rand Paul say, give them nothing. The sort of moderates are saying, how about 600? And the, the Democrats are saying, or the, uh, the really left-wing folks like our man Bernie are saying, no, we need $2,000 checks. And in the midst of all of this, both the leader of the Democratic Party right now, Nancy Pelosi, uh, her house was vandalized, like a pig was put on there and it said, we want everything. And then also Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in, in Congress, uh, the Senate, uh, his house was vandalized too, uh, with a similar message of where's my money, Mitch. Um, and so that is where we're at as 2021 opens and everyone's like, hey, 2021 is going to be great. And like, OK, well, this is the steaming pile of fire shit that welcomes us. So that's the stage for 2021. And I'll pass it over to you, Ben, for some of the things that you want to talk about. Well, I, know I want to first thank you for giving me some of that context. It really it helps show that, you know, a lot of times when when we look to any of the number of corporate media uh, channels out there, everything going on just seems like it started in 2016 with Trump, which we know is obviously patently false, but it creates a very uh, digressive and resentment-laden platform on which discourse can't actually happen because we can't talk about, um, you can only talk about the ills of one party right now. You know, if you bring up anything, all the shenanigans that go on in the DNC in their own primaries, starting even with Obama, but especially in 16 and 18 and definitely this past, this year, you, you know, you can't say that or you'll get canceled. But it gives a good, a good stage of where we're at that we don't really have at this point um, either of the establishment of either of our two parties uh, putting forward an agenda that will truly help us become a participatory democracy. And so I think what we want to talk about today is one thing I was thinking about is I, I, I want to, you know, go down this road a little bit more first, but first give a little teaser to what I call my five point economic plan. Um, 
which very Stalin-esque. I know. I wanted. I, I had six, but I crossed out the six. <laughs> How many gulags does your five-point plan? Well, because think it's got the five. It's got the Pentagon in there, and the pentagram is a very you know. But mm. then if you went to six, then you get six, 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 and the devil. So basically, I wanted to keep it simple. I'm going to give just the very high level. We'll get back to this a little bit later in the show, but it includes debt jubilee. It includes publicly owned banks. Publicly owned banks. It includes individual accounts at either the Federal Reserve System or the U.S. Treasury. We'll get into the technicalities later. Um, It includes uh, both participatory budgeting at the municipal local government level, but also worker-owned co-ops, which is really, if we think about the socialist critique, that's really what the progress is. It's not state-run capitalism or private-run capitalism. It's the idea of worker-owned co-ops, and I'm also adding in their participatory budgeting. Um, the means of production um, belonging in the hands of, of those who actually do the, the producing. Right, and the, the decision-making within an organization is not taken over by what a, a term coined in the 90s, a professional managerial class, which we're arguably or very much so a part of. That is our salary is derived as a PMC. But anyway, that's why we love Liberal Goat Radio, because we can critique ourselves and talk shit about ourselves and say, well, yeah, fuck, we are doing that. But um, and then the fifth point, now that I went down that rabbit hole, you made me completely forget the fifth point. Isn't that something? The fifth point of the pentagram is the one that's used to fend off the wolfman. I'm going to, I got to go, go to my notes. Okay, get your notes. And I'll just say, uh, you're listening to LGR, Liberal Guilt Radio. Today brought to you by the 1940-something film, The Wolfman, in which a gypsy woman has a pentagram that she uses to predict on the hand of Lon Chaney Jr. that he'll become a wolfman. In a thinly veiled um, sort of commentary on Lon Chaney Jr.'s alcoholism, because the real Wolfman is his addiction. And now we're back to Ben's notes. Okay, thank you. Five. You, cr- you crossed out five. <laughs> you have this list of five, but you crossed out five. You crossed it out in your brain and your notes. Exactly, because it's uh, these are what I call, we'll get back to what are instrumental variables. But the last one is incredibly high taxation, 90 to 100% on economic rents. And economic rents, you could think broadly as capital gains, rent, profit, interest, things like that, that have no productive value. They're kind of, we'll get, we'll get back to, I'm making an analogy, I'm working on it right now, with economic rents being the sacrifices mm. we make to the gods of our human created systems, which all civilizations have done for tens of hundreds, thousands of years. But I was looking at some numbers and I think we're somewhere around 40% of all money flows to these Property. things. And it's like, if you think about it in mm. time, has there been a civilization that spent 40% of all their waking hours sacrificing to their gods? Uh, probably mm. not. I don't think you spend three to four days a week doing all of these unnecessary sacrifices. You do a little bit. You want some, but not too much. Mm. So 90 to 100%. Um, and then this also addresses inequality, which we know leads to the inability to really make progress and social chaos and all sorts of wars, everything. So we'll get back to all these five points. Debt jubilee, public banks, uh, individual accounts at the Fed, participatory budgets and worker-owned co-ops, and 90 to 100% taxes on economic rents. The end. That's great. 
Let's start from the back. Let's start from the back end, the back nine, and we'll work our way up to number one. So first of all, let, let me just clarify what you mean by economic uh, rent here. And, um, you know, one of the, the other podcasts that I like to listen to as a sort of palate cleanser from all of the sort of cancel culture, PC culture is um, the program Come Town, which is probably the most offensive, quote, liberal, unquote, um, voice in the podcast sphere. Um, you know, they love throwing around slurs and, and ethnic stereotypes. But at the core of it, um, they're, they, they're what are they're kind of like the jesters of the dirtbag left. They're sort of like the comedic offshoot of, of El Chapo. And they're all kind of in the same uh, universe, uh, Chapo Trap House rather. And um, the sort of gang leader of their pod, uh, Nick, he was saying, someone asked, well, what would you do if you were president? And I expected him to blurt out some like racist funny thing or something. Uh, not that being racist is funny, but, um, but instead he said, look, I think the number one thing is the second you buy a second property, whether it is a rental property or a uh, vacation property, you basically should be like taxed like exactly what you're saying, just like a crazy like 70 to 90% tax to basically say, look, um, if you are in that position where you can sort of expand your property in either a slumlord-esque fashion or a broader sort of like Trump-esque fashion, uh, they basically we're going to tax the fucking shit out of you. And I thought that was, that was very interesting. And um, it seems kind of in line with what you're saying, right? Exactly. And so there's, so behind each of these five points, uh, there's obviously a lot of nuance, partly because we're not starting from scratch. And so one of the first questions mm -hmm. with these kind of taxes is when we say we're taxing the hell out of you, who's the, we, is it the neighborhood, the city, the County, some other powers at the, so, but the idea is like, the economic rent would be what you call capital gains. And so, and so in this instance, it's the appraised value. We're all obsessed with appraisals on real estate. Which has been totally fucked up because of, of like Airbnb and all of this stuff where people are like, oh, I can make a little extra money on my second property. But then that gets included in the selling price, which just further fucks up the rental system uh, for the people who are already suffering. Exactly. Individuals. And like the idea of like, we don't, th this whole notion of a market-based economy versus a, a plan-based one is nonsense right now because we do have a planned economy. It's just planned by what we generally call Wall Street. And one of the start, most stark statistics on this is that 80%, uh, basically about 80% of new money creation goes through real estate. And, mm. but then- Crazy. And so if I go and take a loan out that's new money created to buy a house, and let's say I buy a house for a million dollars, the last person bought it for a half a million, a half a million is the capital gains. Right now there's- The seller. The, the seller, seller has to pay taxes. But it's because of real estate transfer uh, schemes, which are basically legalized tax evasion, an individual can actually, if they buy a different property, never have to pay anything on that. So right now we're at effective capital gains tax. I don't know what the actual number is, but my guess is it's somewhere in the single digits because it includes 0% taxation on transfers and all these schemes mm. that, you know, we know about Trump's one, but he's obviously not the only one that uses it. Uh, basically- mm -hmm. He also using, uses tax abatement to basically like plan out decades in advance. And so that capital gain, so if we're saying this 
value of this real estate is higher and our planned economy is creating new money, but then it goes from one person's hands to one other person's hands, there's no ability for that new money to be used for anything productive. It's some um, created, it's- it's and Productive, you, know, you mean benefit, uh, benefits like the broader populace. Exactly. And because it, it, it denigrates history, it's partly that area is better because of a lot of things. But if you don't invest in those over time, they fall to shambles. And so basically, if we think of economic rents are as one form of, in this case, the capital gains on real estate, it would be profits of uh, corporations, which last year were 12% of GDP, which is enormous. And we know that profits go to a tiny percentage of people. Uh, it's interest payments on loans. And um, basically what all of these things are, are like we live in what we call this capitalist uh, society, and we can argue what it is and isn't. But basically, if we say that these things are markers of its success, it's like, okay, so maybe let's allocate, you know, if we think about a year is 365 days, let's have uh, 36 days of, of holiday. So that's 10%. So we can have 10% of our production go to sacrifice of things that don't actually give productive value, but allow us to buy into the system. Right now, I was trying to do some calculation. We're probably at about 30%. Um, and this does not include the military budget at all or police budgets. It's just paying people to work in what we call the financial economy and, and then also adding into that corporate profits. So basically what we wanna do is say, if this system is working, let's allow that extra stuff to, to go to serve the purpose of things that people democratically think have value. But the only way to do that is to redistribute that uh, wealth, or you could try to prevent it from taking place in the first place, which there's ways of doing that. Which I call distributing wealth to begin with. You don't have to re- Exactly. Everyone's obsessed with, oh, they want to, the liberals want to redistribute wealth. No, we want to distribute wealth. When you have just a small group of people taking up the vast majority of uh, profits and you know benefiting the most from the system, uh, while others suffer, starve, and die, I don't think that uh, that is a matter of uh, just redistributing one person's wealth. I think it means distributing the wealth of our economy in the fucking first place. Exactly. So that's why four points of this economic plan are on distribution. This is one to disincentivize. Um, the whole idea was if you look at, you know, when, when we said our, the U.S. was growing at its, at, at, in the most progressive way, the top tax rate was 91%. So to say that it, uh, it, it so it, it definitely, the only thing it disincentivizes is the accumulation of wealth. It does not disincentivize ingenuity, creativity, entrepreneurship, all these other things that both of our parties right now say it does. There's absolutely zero empirical anthropological evidence of that being true. And so, um, and so that's, and I really like this quote yesterday from the Greek uh, Ministry of Finance. Right. Give me that quote, and then we'll move on to number four, just to keep us moving. Then we'll move on to the next one. He said, solvency is a political decision because power politics 
not markets, decide who is bankrupt and who is not. And what this is basically saying is that this whole idea of if you're more profitable, it means you're, um, it's because you're more successful, this, that, or the other thing, uh, that's patently false because we neglect the, both the work that individuals do, but then also our institutions, which we call our government, deciding who succeeds and who doesn't, which is not always a bad right. thing. We just have to decide uh, more in favor of the people than uh, a different group of people that's much right. smaller. Okay, great. So let's move on to number four on your, your five-point uh, pentagram to save the economy. Number four. Oh, so this is the, this is the good one. Participatory budgeting and worker-owned co-ops. Okay. Um, I'll start with the second one because just this morning, Richard Wolf, he has a fabulous half hour on KPFK every morning at 9 a.m. or something. Not to be confused with Dick Wolf, the creator of the Law and Order verse. Really? Or maybe it's the same guy. I don't fucking know. <laughs> Wait, that would be if they're the same guy, a Marxist philosopher professor. It's not no, the same maybe. guy. Maybe you don't know that in a parallel universe that's non-Euclidean, they could. He's a Marxist philosopher in a world of Marxist philosophers. Uh, lots of fucking crazy ideas are thrown around. These are their stories. Ba-bum. So the fourth one. Yeah. So participatory budgets and worker-owned co-ops. So I'm going to try to sum up Richard Wolff's 30-minute uh, lecture this morning in 30 seconds, but I still suggest people listen to it. He was talking about capitalism versus socialism. He starts by saying, first, let's define what each of them is and what what, what they've done well, what they've done poorly. And, um, and by the end, what he says is the key distinction is less government versus private sector, which is really just state capitalism versus private capitalism, and more where the, where the node of power lies. Mm. And do workers have, in order to have democracy, individuals need to have agency over the decisions that affect their life in an urbanized society in which we live, uh, we spend a lot of time at work, so you want worker-owned cooperatives. And Spain is actually, in some parts of Spain, they're a great model of how well it works. All over the world, we can see examples of this working, so it's nothing new. But basically, in order to have a, a, a functioning democracy in an urbanized world like we live in, in which work is such an important part of our lives, worker-owned co-ops uh, need to be part of an economic plan. And I have also participatory budgets because what that, because that's in a lot of um, policy prescriptions and manifestos of all sorts of social and environmental justice movements. Because what it's saying is our local, and this is at the local level, cities, neighborhoods, things like that, let individuals be involved in the decision making of how we budget, how we create a budget, which is encompasses our values. And obviously, who participates is an issue. If you really want it to be democratic, you have to go and find people that can't get to a meeting at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you want we want to be more in that line than we are now, which is very employer-employee okay. centric. All right, great. So let's lay that out um, in sort of a block-by-block -block fashion. So we have a block of an urban neighborhood, and we have some apartment buildings, uh, we have like uh, some civic buildings, maybe a post office or something, and then we have a uh, retail space. So the retail space and the apartments are owned by uh, Corporation X. 
And uh, right now the uh, city budget is set up uh, because uh, is set up to have like tax abatement for the uh, uh, owners of these buildings. Um, and then a bunch of the police, a bunch of the budget goes to police to basically guard these buildings from um, from the people in the community. Meanwhile, the um, rent is going up for the the individuals who are living in these spaces and the um, the uh, costs of the uh, retail items are going up. So you're saying as a po and the reason why is because the the owner of all of this property uh, donates money to the local, um, you know, uh, uh, local city council member who is uh, participating in the budget. Um, and everybody who's actually in there buying things and renting things is getting fucked while um, the a politician is getting a bunch of money and for his purposes uh, of, of staying in power and the um, the owner of all of this property is benefiting. So you're saying rather than having this system, we have a system where the people get to participate and say, actually, I think that yes, uh, X amount of the budget should go to um, providing um, housing to the uh, to the individuals who are living here. And we need to have a more progressive tax rate uh, where the individuals uh, are paying lower taxes um, so that they can offset uh, rising prices. Meanwhile, the individuals who are in companies that are running uh, those properties uh, are taxed fairly. And um, as opposed to just throwing a, sh throwing a shit ton of money at the police to protect the businesses, we um, maybe not defund the peace police, but we refund the police and, and allocate those resources towards actually protecting the community and mediating disputes between individuals and individuals and the companies around there. Is that a kind of good block by block breakdown of what you're talking about, the current situation and a possible solution that you're proposing with point four? Exactly. But it also goes to show the difficult, uh, I don't want to call them barriers, but the road ahead is not an easy one because the powers that be right now uh, are not going to go down quietly in the night, as you might say. Right. And one of the big issues, obviously, is that it's been a race to, to the bottom in a lot of cities and states to try to attract businesses by giving them tax breaks, thinking that that's the way to spur a, uh, an economy, which is obviously one way, but uh, another way, there's other ways of doing it, but one, one thing that needs to happen is that when new money is created, it's created through either productive anything productive, which includes care-based work, mm -hmm. which is taking care of kids, adults, and education. So, so going back to those civic buildings, let's say, yeah, there's a post office, there is a school, and there is a uh, federally funded healthcare center. So you're saying rather than spend all of the money on the cops and giving tax breaks to the guys that own the, the, uh, the stores and the uh, the apartment buildings, you're saying, hey, why don't we actually distribute that wealth so that we can fund the post office um, to provide better services to the people and jobs to the individuals there. We can fund the schools, provide education and meals to the kids and jobs to the people living in the community. Um, and then also fund the hospital um, medical center to better serve um, the individuals on the short term in the community, but also improve um, improve um uh length and quality of living and then also 
back to the schools also try to uh, encourage um, better graduation rates and also um, just a better educational experience. Exactly. And I think one of the biggest difficulties in getting there is that the, one of the losers in this situation are property owners. Yes. Um, not all of them, more recent ones. And what we and that's why public banks are part of this, in part because you need to see the creation of money as a public utility. Mm -hmm. But also we're going to need to create creating creating modes uh methods of investment yeah. that make it so that people who are gonna lose out and the people that are gonna lose out have the cushion to lose out if i buy a house for eight hundred thousand and in 30 years it's worth seven hundred thousand uh i'm still better off because of tax breaks and all sorts and also pride of ownership than a renter next door who has zero equity in a house so it, it'll be an intergenerational transfer of also knowledge mm -hmm. that if your house is underwater as the whole saying would go in 2008 that it doesn't mean that you lost value or your life is worthless or you don't have wealth but we need to do it in such a way where it doesn't feel so abrupt right. so it's not one day to the next and so the idea of a public bank could do it through the same kind of loan-based mentality that allows for these transitions to happen over one or two generations mm -hmm. or even three rather than very abruptly because the blowback could be far worse is this point three what you're saying is totally true. are we are we on point three this is well i i referred to point two which fed fed accounts is point three which is basically saying that uh so one of the motivations is uh one of my friends he's a 72 year old professor and he's traveled around the world for 50 years uh, he's seen a lot. One of the th things that comes up everywhere where he goes is one of the most common forms of lending is a group of individuals pooling their resources and rotating it around. It's called a rotating savings and credit association, ROSCA. And so basically what an individual account is, is saying that it's, it's trusting that uh, the net impact of creating money through individuals rather than institutions will be that artist like you'll get a lot more artists pursuing their work which we proved in the new deal some of our favorite comedians came out of that um and then also this idea of getting rid of this professional class around finance mm -hmm. which this professor says the reason why a lot of uh, areas don't want finance people in there is because they see no reason to pay someone even 2% to manage their money. They're like, we can do this ourselves, right. the individuals taking the loans and giving. So what it allows is uh, what we also call solidarity lending. That's the term that comes up most in the US, that people will pool their money for different uses in smaller circles. And we'll see just a ton of creativity, entrepreneurship, and all sorts of things at a very grassroots level um, and also just a resurgence of artists being able to pursue their art um, and all and then uh, it, it's also an alternative to the universal basic income too right which uh, could fit hand in hand in this but um, this comes fed accounts come, becomes especially important during uh, crises, which as we're deleveraging out of our, you know, every seven to 10 years in capitalism, having a crisis, 
that when all this new money is pumped in super quickly, have a large percentage of that just go to every individual and let things aggregate from the bottom up and the top down. The public banks are top down, Fed accounts are bottom up. And another way that this will help is also even the playing field in terms of the cost of debt. Because basically, for the individuals who need debt the least, which are companies that are sort of in the black on their their balance sheets, can um, increase their profits by basically getting cheap money now, right? And at at good rates. Meanwhile, the people who actually need good rates, the people who are just trying to to uh, you know finance a home or even an apartment or even a you know buying a cell phone because they need it to conduct business or buying a car or leasing a car because they have to get to work, debt for those folks is very expensive. So whereas you have yeah. the debt for those those larger entities, <clears throat> the, their debt is set in place to increase profits both short and long long term. Um, Whereas the debt for um, individuals and individual households is set to always make sure that those folks are a little bit behind, that they're always sort of Mm -hmm. working for the car, working for the apartment, working for the phone. So rather than working to build wealth for themselves and generational wealth for their kin, uh, they're basically just working to kind of catch up with um, everything that they owe to those companies that are getting cheaper debt at lower and better rates to keep them kind of down. And public banking could certainly help that. It can help the transition in the debt jubilee, which we do have, we just don't call it that, but a bailout is a debt jubilee. So not only do the companies that in the at certain times don't need the money get it, they also simultaneously during the regular chaos of what we call capitalism about every seven or 10 years, they get both bailed out. So their, their debts get erased, whether it's the auto industry, banking, finance, uh, retail, anything, the big ones get bailed out. They get access to cheap money. The little ones go under, and then they're able to do what they call distressed assets is what they call them or stranded assets, you know? So they, they get, yeah. So they can basically buy up their competition at dirt. The subprime mortgages, for instance, and these, quote, financial instruments, unquote, that are just sort of little playthings that get the super rich richer. Yeah, they're gimmicks which hide, which make opaque what's really going on, which is basically using the government as a tool for capitalists rather than the people and basically saying, we're going to give we're going to give everything you possibly want. We're going to bail you out. We're going to give you cheap money. We're not going to give it to anybody else. And then we're going to allow you to use that and also allow our court system to protect you to do it, to buy up all of your competition, which a lot of those are illegal, Mm. but they never will be tried. So it's not like it's legal. It's Mm -hmm. just laws that aren't actually uh, uh, used right now. And so what it does is it, 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 it concentrates this idea of debt jubilee and let's define that. A debt jubilee is basically saying it's it's biblical, baby. It's before the yes, the Byzantine exactly. Empire. I think was one of the first written accounts. Uh, it's in the uh, Hammurabi's. Is it Hammurabi's code? No, no, no. I'm, I'm thinking of someone else. It's in the it's in the Old Testament. And let let's let's use this to bring up. And it's before the Old Testament. But yeah, let's bring up the Old Testament. Right. Well, it's it's basically documented for the majority of the world. 
uh, as uh, something that that we are required to do, um, which is to actually let's take a step back. So there is this perception as we talk about this banking class, there is this perception that this is a um, that this is an example of the Jews running the world. Mm-hmm. This is a thousands year old uh, lie that basically says the Jews are this greedy banker class that's really ruling everything and keeping us down. Okay, that is one of the hugest anti-Semitic uh, uh, falsehoods since the assassination of Christ. When in reality, the Torah, the basically the beginning, the first book of the Bible, uh, the foundation of modern monotheism, uh, which led to... Um, uh, Christianity and, of course, uh, Islam, two religions that uh, also um, embrace the this Torah as canonical to their religion, which means that the majority of the world ha- is required by their religion to follow the Torah, essentially. Now, in the Torah, there is um, something called Jubilee, and it is this, this is a um, mechanism to prevent Exactly what everyone is saying is happening, which is that the Jews have this this lending class that's using to control everything. No, the Jewish faith has built into its canon, into its laws, a mechanism to prevent that from happening. Now, yeah, it was probably seen it uh, in in different um, in different uh, civilizations, but we codified it in a way that the majority of the earth, between Islam, Christianity and uh, Judaism, the majority of the earth has committed to this law, which is that at the end of seven cycles of Shemitah, uh, uh, which are um, sabbatical years, and according to biblical regulations, all debt is relieved, that basically everybody gets a golden parachute. And we do have a form of jubilee Instead of planning it out, basically saying, "Hey, we have this, this, these seven cycles, um, and we're gonna we're gonna sort of wipe the the debt uh, clean at the end of these seven cycles." Instead of planning it out in a logical way um, that benefits the majority of people, we let it happen on a disaster basis, so that when the subprime mortgage crisis occurs, we have jubilee for the auto industry and for the lending industry that caused the problem to to begin with, we give them jubilee. Or a current example, like uh, during this current pandemic where we pass these relief bills because capitalism has failed this nation uh, in its current state, uh, we give these these relief bills that that really come uh, as tax cuts to those who caused the problem and are still not only doing okay during this period, but benefiting from this period. We give them jubilee in the form of tax cuts and also these, these PPE loans, which are basically saying like uh, the government will, will cover your, uh, your um, uh, employment costs for the people working for you as you're firing them. As you're laying them off, as you're fucking them over. So here's the thing. There's the whole seven cycles, whatever. We can define it however we want, as long as we have it planned out. But I think it I think it adds up to like 40 years or something, according 40, to the Bible. I, I think it's 49. It's seven cycles on seven cycles. So it's every 49 years you have a complete jubilee. And every seven years, it's a re 
structuring. So you reprice it, say. There you go. Yeah. So you're not just saying like everybody's off the hook. Right. It's basically everyone gets to sort of refinance their mortgage to their advantage, to everyone's advantage at the end of this period. And since we can't remember when the last Jubilee was, I say we start now, today. Yeah. Well, we know when they are. They've been going on about every seven years. But as you captured very well, it's, it is only for a handful of people. And so I think, so what I've been looking at and some thinkers have, have called it almost like a form of neo-feudalism. And you could, and you could say that really started mm -hmm. with Obama and Geithner um, not listening to the head of the FDIC at the time, um, Sheila. Yeah. Timothy Geithner. So Obama. And so sometimes people are like, well, you know, like you couldn't get this stuff done. Some decisions were made in very small rooms in small groups. And now that we have full documentation, it's like we do know. So it's not just, you know, it's not a blame game. What Hank Paulson was up to. Right. So, so it's basically saying that the decision to uh, bail out what you would call the landlords. The shoguns. Yeah. A step in the direction of is the exact opposite of what a capitalist prescription would be, even according to Adam Smith, because the idea of a free market, one of the things it's free from is a, a landlord, is economic rents, that you don't need to pay these, that you can't have what we call competition uh, and a market exist if you have hmm. landlords. And they were trying to go, step away from feudalism. So the decisions made by Obama and, and Geithner at that time were a major step back towards mm. it. And whatever their motivation was, I'm sure as, as more of their, you know, the journals and the meeting notes are released, what is it every, it's 18 years after the administration? Just long enough that we have no idea what the fuck an administration was doing. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll learn for history, but basically what it was is it's, it's going the exact opposite direction of what even who we call the father of capitalism would say capitalism is um, by re-entrenching and re-exerting power of our landlords, of our capital owners uh, in lieu of uh, a social democracy or democracy at all. Um, and it's not for lack of ideas. Uh, it was even, you know, it, it's not like it was just like some little fringe grassroots movement. One of the people sitting at that table uh, was saying, this is the way we should do it. And they decided that they didn't want to do it that way. So basically, uh, the, the, we, we have just a variant of it, but the, the Jewish faith says that the Jubilee applies to everybody. It's not just the debt debt tours. not just the people who caused the problem exactly it's 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 everyone and obviously the people that lose out are the ones who are the debt tours but it's not like they lose out entirely they they're all sitting pretty <laughs> they're yeah. doing just fine. i mean compared to what's even if compared even to what's going billionaires on with... only had one million dollars they still have a fucking million dollars if their tax rate was 99.99 percent they'd still have 10 million dollars which i think is perfectly enough wouldn't you say mm-hmm so that. But I, I like the way that, that. You, the context. And so I've been trying to find more uh, context with. Um, with religious texts, because I think it grounds it in history. It shows uh, 
the fact that a lot of what we call our money system is still a human created thing and partly what it does these ideas of jubilee is saying it acknowledges that money is a human institution that we've created and that if we don't mm -hmm. want to let it take over all of our decision making we need to rein it in from time to time so it takes away its primacy and without doing that we continue to get caught up in this notion. And that's why people look at like the religion of capitalism, this idea of like there's certain tenets um, and dogmas that just, you know, there's no way we can change that. That's just what it is. And it's like, and then so Jubilee, what it really is exerting in a, in a more like uh, philosophical way is saying that money in and of itself is not such a, uh, it doesn't have so much primary importance. It's a good marker. It's a good bookkeeper. It's a good way to allow trade to happen more easily, but that we can't let it uh, lead so much. It needs to follow. And right now what we're seeing, and this is why some, some people call the U.S. like a neo-feudal state, is that it's continually leading. And that really took off in 2008, and it's metastasized right now, because a lot of what's going on behind the scenes is that not only the things you mentioned with certain of the bailouts of cheap money, the PPP, but behind the scenes, our central bank, again, like the Ministry of uh, Finance in Greek said, solvency is a, is a political decision. Our central bank is buying up unlimited amounts of corporate debt, but no government debt. So that's why our cities, counties, states are all quote unquote failing because our central bank has left them out to dry because it's this project of privatizing absolutely everything so that we'll look very much probably like a mashup between Brazil and Russia in the years to come until we see the revolution that we're um, espousing and uh, our five-point economic plan uh, comes into fruition. And what's cool is that all of these points I laid out have either a bill in, in our national Congress, has massive movements behind it, um, and, and it has a history too, not only in this country, but other countries of actually happening. So none of this stuff, as I like to say, is building a, a fission um, nuclear plant. We're not doing something that's never been done before. So uh, the question is, what's the path to get there and how much death and destruction is gonna be littered before we get to this new horizon? And um, that we cannot know. Maybe you know. Can you make a sports analogy now? Sports analogy to what you were just talking about? Yeah, about getting through. Sure. Yeah. Well, here, here's a good example. Um, let's talk about uh, the way that um, that salaries uh, decide uh, which franchises win uh, win titles in their various sports. So uh, are you familiar with the whole concept of, of Moneyball, which um, I'm wearing right now my Oakland Athletics hat. And by the way, I like any team name that's just like very basic and old timey. It's like, who are we? We are from mm -hmm. Oakland and we are athletes. So we are the Oakland Athletics. It's like, I wish that they would change um, the San Francisco 49ers to the San Francisco sportsman. But anyway, um, there was a time period where uh, the A's had the lowest payroll in baseball. 
So uh, basically at the lower end, you have your Padres, you have your A's, you have your, your teams that have, uh, let's say maybe a, a $50 million um, um, budget for the salaries of their players. Then you have a team like the San Francisco Giants, the New York Yankees, um, the Los Angeles Dodgers that have payrolls that are in the hundred million range. So obviously, you know, sometimes the other teams will get into the playoffs, but basically the reason why you see a lot of teams like the Yankees or uh, the, the Red Sox or the, the Dodgers um, or the Giants getting a lot of uh, postseason play or a lot of um, a lot of titles is because they have the payroll to do it. So you could say that fundamentally baseball will never be a fair game because some teams have the money to basically um, buy better teams, buy better players. And so what, what Billy Bean um, sort of uh, 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 took uh, as an approach, who is the, the manager of the, the, uh, the Oakland Athletics during the so-called money ball season, is he, he said, um, and this wasn't his theory, but he said, hey, let's actually just think about we're not buying players. We're buying runs. So he basically set up this structure to, to use the money that his team had not to just buy star power uh, in terms of their, their roster, but to put together a team that could get the most runs. And the motherfuckers, um, they made a great uh, October run. They made a great uh, playoff run. Uh, but, you know, the big expensive teams like the Yankees eventually smacked them down. And although this, this sort of Moneyball concept uh, got them to this point, it could never quite get them that World Series ring because obviously the Red Sox and the Yankees are like, well, now we're going to use Moneyball. So not only did, they, did they, they take those tactics, but then now they have their payroll. So the game will fundamentally never be fair. Now you could say that that's just free market. Look, New York is market one in terms of media and Oakland is market 69 or whatever. More money is made in New York off of professional sports than is made in Oakland. So that you could say that that is competition uh, in the broader sense economically, but in terms of the competition we really care about, which is watching baseball teams play against each other, the actual competition, and let's say that the equivalent of that is the actual innovation that that, that companies do, that, that brilliant people uh, who are running uh, their own sort of startups or whatever, that's true competition in the same way that, that equally matched baseball teams are true competition. But instead, we have the Walmarts of the world, the Home Depots of the world, uh, knocking the uh, um, the local hardware stores and you know local markets out of business. Um, the same thing's happening in professional sports. We have just the, the Walmarts of professional sports, the fucking Yankees, knocking out the more, um, and obviously the, the A's are our corporation as well, but they're the equivalent of the, the mom and pop shop uh, around the corner. So basically what you're saying is provide an even playing field for all of the teams. Or, or let's look at it at the level of the sport. So... I don't like the idea of trying to do too many grand schemes. So professional baseball will do what it does, but let's also have yeah. mechanisms to allow people that love as they, as that commercial was love of the game. 
There's a lot of people that just want yeah. to play base, baseball or, or some sport. We want to see a good game. We don't, want, we don't care about the profits of the companies who own the stadiums. Exactly. And, and so we don't care about that. That's not the competition we care about. We care about watching games. Right. And we know the continued history of massive stadiums being built at the detriment to the local community. So in, my, in this scheme, what you'd have is the ability... But they sell it to the community saying, hey, we're going to give you jobs. We're going to basically, don't you want this thing here? Yeah. Or, but a lot of times they, and even when the people do, don't want it, they can steamroll those oppositions anyway. But basically, what I'm saying, forget about that for a second. What I'm saying is just the ability to, to um, have much more of what we call the, the AAA or just community baseball. In the same way, we want more community theater, local newspapers give people that want to do these endeavors that we all value because we used to go to them and it's not like people stopped. They just got bought out. Give them uh, a decent pay. And I'm not saying that, you you know, you need to make a hundred thousand dollars a year just to, to play baseball, you know, every other weekend for people to come and watch. But like mm-hmm. a little bit, and it's a supplement. It's not the only source. Because right now we know that like people in the AAA average something like $3 an hour in this promise they might get to the big leagues. So make it fair. By um, literally selling peanuts. Exactly. And, but don't necessarily always try to do it top down. And part of the bottom up approaches. Um, or you can, the top down could be just the distribution of the resources to local groups as we saw like a lot of the new deal stuff in the arts was uh, distributing um, both the money and the power to pay local actors to take classes or anyone interested in it that showed, but that, you know, there's still some notion of just of commitment of dedication that it's not just, you know, I sign up for a class go once and I get paid for the year, you know, it's, it's, so there will always be Mm. the scammers and things like that but you don't want to pen- penalize everybody for a few bad apples because a lot of people do want to do these things and they would do them more if they were able to, as we say, meet the rent and put food on the table. There you go. I mean, here, I'll, I'll give you an example. You brought up local theater, which is close to my heart. Um, so, uh, you, you know, the, you know, you're from the, or you lived in the Bay area for many years. You're probably familiar with with buildings uh, designed by Julia Morgan. So Julia Morgan was she was an amazing architect uh, who who designed hundreds of buildings in in California, um, and she designed like really rich guy buildings like Hearst Castle, which is like the most rich guy building uh, in California. But then she also would be designing, you know, uh, YWCA's, you know, uh, Mills College um, buildings that you could require, you could sort of define as like progressive edifices, you know, uh, a YWCA is designed to serve women and girls who, who might need some help. Mills College is a historically uh, uh, female uh, uh, institution that um, has helped many women in the Bay Area and beyond uh, build careers. So um, she designed this little building called the Julia Morgan uh, Theater, the Julia Morgan Center for the Arts. It's this very cute little theater in Berkeley. And I had the pleasure of doing a couple of plays there. 
was in a production of Little Women, uh, and so, where I yeah. played Laurie, the only little man in in the story of Little Women. And mm-hmm. um, I think I was paid five hundred dollars and like got a hoodie for the yes. entire rehearsal and run of this show, which probably took up let's say three months. Oh yeah. Meanwhile, I was making money uh, working for a uh, a locally funded um, um, arts organization called uh, Art Reach, um, which um, sent me to different schools to teach theater to to elementary school kids and middle school kids as well. So I was surviving off of some like meager arts funding from the uh, from my local hometown, the city of Walnut Creek. And then also uh, stipends from this local organ, this local theater company, Active Arts for Young Audiences. Um, meanwhile, across the bay um, in San Francisco, there would be these big touring companies uh, that would come in, like they would do Wicked or these these huge shows, Rent or whatever. The, whatever the big show from New York would eventually make its way out to to. Uh, the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco. Now, is Wicked a better play than the production of Little Women that I was in? Of course, a hundred percent. The acting and the design and all of that um, was amazing. The only thing is, it cost a hundred and twenty dollars at least for a fucking ticket. So, if you're a kid. Um, you're not necessarily, and, and, and your, um, your parents are making the average income in the Bay Area, you're not going to be able to afford to go see Wicked. I wasn't able to afford to see Wicked. And um, my singing voice was certainly shitty that I would know I would never get anywhere near being in a production of Wicked. Um, but our shitty, no. Our our little play at the Julia Morgan Center, I think it cost 15 bucks to get in. So was it as good as Wicked? Of course not. But did it, did it get a chance for schools to come out and uh, see a play and maybe get inspired to join uh, a theater program themselves? Absolutely. And um, was that was that art reach program that sent me into, you know, communities that were for California, relatively rural. Like I would drive out to these cities and I would be like, I didn't even realize this was part of our, our district. And it would be like these, um, these sometimes beautiful new schools that were in the middle of nowhere who, that didn't necessarily have arts or arts programs yet. And I would drive out to these places. I probably ended up with all the gas (laughs) and wear and tear in my car. I, probably did not let's say profit off of this but i was able to survive and live in my little um my little um apartment uh in the bay area barely but eventually i had to fucking get a job and become a little neoliberal technocrat and go work for a solar company where we all convinced each other that we were going to save the world um Mm -hmm. so yes but because um what you're talking about is basically um, a system in which we can still have wicked <laughs> for for people and and the, the people who produce wicked can still make money but someone like me can also contribute to the community in the best way that I can and let's face it is is I feel like I'm I'm good at my my job at unnamed organization but I'm better at teaching theater to kids 
But right. if I could make the same amount of money doing that, I'd still be doing that. So you're saying here's yeah. a system where we don't necessarily need universal base income, but let's let Ali survive doing what he does best. Mm -hmm. Or, and, and so what I'd say, I think that was a very, so keeping on this, on your personal story, we look, I look at it, the questions we kind of sometimes would ask are from the societal level. Do we have the additional resources we need to allow this person to do something that we can call non-industrial mm -hmm. or um, doesn't um, directly meet a basic need? Right. And the question, the answer is obviously yes. We're told it's no because we don't have the money or the budget for it. But if we look at, if we take that and we flip it for a second, we're like, well, then how do we have this small group of billionaires and a large group of people that can smoke cigars, go out for fancy whiskeys, nice mm -hmm. dinners, vacation in Tahiti? We have all of these resources that are going to like 3% of the world population to just live this extravagant life yep. that also doesn't actually do anything industrial right. or productive. And, and by moving, by changing careers, I was switching to benefiting that system. You're propping up. And so the way that I sometimes think about it, it's like, there will be people in your situation that leave the arts because they want to work in solar, which is totally fine. You don't want to like force people to stay in one thing. I had to move though, because the economy tanked. And while everyone was getting their golden parachute, at the in the banking class, I had to quit what I actually was good at so I could go work for them. So I worked for this company where we all pretended like we were saving the world. But who do you think was funding and therefore benefiting from this work we were doing? Credit Suisse and JP fucking Morgan. So exactly like you're saying, maybe I wasn't making any money teaching Shakespeare and Japanese no drama to kids who didn't normally get that education. But I would say I was doing something better for society than lining the coffers of JP Morgan and US Bank and Credit Suisse. You're doing something less impactful on the planet too. And you're doing something that's more locally beneficial. You making a bunch of money at a company that's based in another town and then going on vacations in other parts of the world, not only is damaging to the environment, mm -hmm. but also maintains these power structures. And then locally, nobody really cares that you work for the solar company and, and vacation in Tahiti. Yep. But if you were working in the arts and every year you directly impacted even five kids in the arts in, in, in 20 years, that's a hundred kids that you would have directly impacted. And you're on the streets like, Hey Lee, this is, and you're like, Oh my God, you're, Oh my, I remember when you were 10, what are you doing back here? Yeah. I'm just home for the holidays. And so it's like, and we know that what's keeping us back is not, you know, the, how are we going to pay for it? This, that, or the other thing. It's, it's the idea of, it's really breaking out of this notion that we don't, that this money-based, this finance-based society is the one, is how we need to make our decisions rather than what would people do uh, in smaller groups if they could aggregate their, their resources and their efforts and what ends would they do? And obviously they're not all going to be peachy keen. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's always going to be bullies and, and, and things like that, but you don't want the bullies that to, to have such massive control over yeah. the livelihoods of so many others and the planet at that.
And so it's really, it's saying that, you know, maybe Lee in, in the tough economic downturn isn't making as much money as his neighbor that works in solar, but he doesn't get evicted. He can still get food. He has access to healthcare if he gets sick. Yep. And he can live not an extravagant life. But make more money in one year than I had made in the like five years that I had done theater. Yeah. And maybe you don't actually ever end any year with a lot of savings, but you also know that you live in a, in a place where when you retire, you're not going to have to just get move and get kicked out. That yeah. you may never acquire a lot, but you can follow your, your passion in the arts and, and stay doing that, knowing that you can uh, have a place to live. You can eat, you have access to healthcare when you need it. Yeah. Um, and if you have kids yourself, that you, you'll get a little break for a little while so you can so you can raise them. Right. And it's that kind of net. And maybe, you know, maybe Lee or maybe a different Lee in a different town after a while is like, you know what? I had a lot of fun. I'm kind of tired of acting. I want to go work in solar. That's what I want to do. I want to, you know, have my friends over and give them all really high-end whiskey. Well, then this other Lee who's still acting is going to go to that person's house, drink some of the whiskey. I literally did that last night. Literally, my sister-in-law came over and I poured her like some like $80 whiskey. Not that expensive. It's kind of an example of my life. Like I own a house, so I don't live in an apartment and I don't have the $500 whiskey, but I have the $80 whiskey. Yeah, and so you'll have some, like some people, like not all... A little bit of inequality in this sense is okay because if you're sharing it with other people, you're all adding different forms of value. And it's not not everyone has pangs of jealousy. It's not like an artist goes to their friend's house with more money and is like, God, I hate that person. I want to kill him. They're like, Wow, I've got a good friend and we joke around it. I can give him shit. He comes to my place, he gives me his whiskey. He's got fancier stuff, but I don't really care. Yeah, there you go. And it's so you, you know, so there's always going to be a little bit of what we call inequality, but as long as it's um, not so extravagant and so damaging yeah. that it's, it's just, it's painful to see. And it, it's psychologically traumatic to so many and then physically painful to a lot as well is what really is where it gives us pause to say maybe the way we're making our decisions is completely flawed. And so, you know, uh, the 20s are going to be a crazy decade. It's going to be crazy. And I'm sorry, everyone listening. I didn't mean to make this a uh, episode, a, a referendum on my own personal uh, career decisions, but I think it's just a decent, ex it's a decent example of what you're talking about. Exactly. Yours are great trajectory. Maybe Lee, maybe you would have stayed doing the arts for 10 more years and then gone to solar. Or maybe you would have maybe would have left at the exact same time. But that a lot of the individual decisions matter, but they also don't matter. It's also just saying that we have the resources, we've had the technology, we have and, and so a lot of Credit our defects, Swiss could be making plenty of money pretending like they care about the environment without technocrat version of Lee. Exactly. And Lee was making a more, I was making a, a better influence on the community doing what I was doing. Yeah. But we also want some people in solar. We yes. like turning on our electricity and I'm sure you'd rather drink whiskey that you don't make in your bathtub 
And some of that requires some energy to get it to you. We served Evan Williams at my wedding, but I don't drink that bullshit at home. So, I, I mean, here's here's the thing. Um, I, I'm thinking now about um, exactly what you're 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 saying, and I, I'm sitting here in my home with my um, using all of my expensive audio equipment that I've that I've purchased over the years with the money that I've made as a technocrat with my pregnant wife who's able to take time off of work and basically not have to go to work because I can support our family. Um, and, and, and I'm like, this is the, the American dream. This is what everyone should be able to have a decent job, the ability to, to enjoy what it is you like to do outside of your work and the ability to, to take care of your family. But now that you mentioned it and you know, you mentioned like being able to fund things like the arts, I think back to, in my hometown, like I wasn't rich and I will never be famous in the, the broader world. But in my little town, it was I was weirdly like famous among the youth of the, the town. I'd I'd be walking down the street and a car would drive by and people would be like, Mr. Golden. I'd be in a restaurant on a date and I'd see kids whispering and they'd come up and, and they would say, Mr. Golden, it's good to see you. So I was like weirdly like a little celebrity among the 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 youth of my community. And as I sit back here, I kind of miss it. I really miss it, honestly. And it would be nice to be able to, because I walk through the streets of my community, I don't need everyone to kiss my ass, but it would be nice to, to feel like I'm contributing to the community um, and I'm, I'm known and loved in the community, but also be able to support my own life and my own family. And I think back to my favorite, uh, one of my favorite movies and the kind of movie that ages with you over the years and means different things, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And in this movie, we see Captain Kirk has accepted a promotion to Admiral. So basically he's taken on less of a in the trenches. He's, he's given up his in the trenches job of being captain of this small group of young people. Um, and he's be become a bureaucrat, a technocrat. And now he's just an admiral in charge of fleet operations. And you would say, well, that's the logical move. It was the logical move for Lee to mature. And, and instead of trying to be you know, some local celebrity uh, who was making $13,000 a year, some shit like that. Uh, it was logical for Lee to be able to, to uh, uh, take on a more adult job. But I think back to what Spock, the most logical person in the universe, said to Captain Kirk. And I realize maybe it applies to us as well. And Spock says, if I may be so bold, it was a mistake for you to accept promotion. Commanding a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else is a waste of material. And so as I sit here um, with a position in my life where I am contributing to the greater good more than I would say the greater detriment, like I'm not working for Monsanto Chemicals, I'm working for an organization that is dedicated to doing something. I used to work at a solar company that was dedicated to doing something good, but I also feel like I am not pursuing my first best destiny. And I therefore feel like my life is a waste of material. And that it's my own personal bullshit, little solipsistic journey, but that encapsulates what maybe is wrong about our society. We have so many people out there who are jockeying computers, who are jockeying cash registers, who are delivering bullshit packages, who are driving people around in Ubers and Lyfts, 
And I guarantee that for the vast majority of these people, our neighbors, our friends, these stupid bullshit jobs are not their first best destiny. Maybe we're not all going to be fucking rock stars or whatever, but driving an Uber is probably not the majority of people's best first destiny. And therefore, as Spock would say, it is a waste of material. And I look at so many fucking talented people. And I think about all the conversations I had, uh, like with my doorman in New York, who, uh, I kind of uh, envied in a way, even though I was listening, live, living in my nice New York apartment, he was like, yeah, I'm working on a, on a writing thing. Me and my partner, we're working on, on writing something and we're going we're gonna to make it happen. And I was like, fuck yeah, keep it going. Because just gardening a bunch of fucking white people in a gentrified neighbor in, neighborhood in Harlem, I guarantee was not Sean's first best destiny. And him sitting at that desk was a waste of material. I think about the like cab driver I had a while ago going to some fucking cocktail party where I was going to, you know, where I spent the evening uh, bragging about all of the, the shit that I was doing to save the world. And the cab driver, I was asking what he does, and he actually works for one of the organizations that we support as a dance teacher. But here he was driving a fucking car driving my dumb ass who works at the organization that funds his organization because we can't fund the organization enough so that they can hire him full-time. It's not our fault. But I guarantee that driving my ass to that party was not his first best destiny. It was a waste of fucking material. And I think that's what you're asking for is a society in which we can all pursue our first best destiny, whether it's dancing whether it's writing or whatever. And I'm using the arts examples because I'm surrounded by people who are great artists who have to do other bullshit or aren't doing anything because this fucking system sets it up that you can only succeed doing something creative if it fucking makes money. Mm -hmm. And I think, no, I think that's, and I think one of the things that's holding us back, I'm thinking to uh, a writer 130 years ago wrote, this idea of that ownership has all the prestige, but doing useful things was often denigrated. And so go. the arts are kind of a, are a gray area in a sense, because you know we definitely denigrate the work of people working um, in a lot of industries, uh, including food, but the arts are in the middle, but still it's this idea of uh, also changing that mindset of like to be successful doesn't mean that you just own things. Right. Um, it's, it's over, it's overemphasizing that, that self-worth through ownership, which then takes us away. And then it makes half of us miserable and the other half miserable because we got to be around the miserable types. And so it's saying that, how do we achieve like doing our best thing? And we certainly have the resources. Like if we look at the number of people engaged in meeting food, water, health, and shelter, it's only like 30% of the workforce or something. I mean, water systems are less than 1%. Food production and distribution is like 3%. Health is like 15 to 18. Oh, and then we don't want to forget educations and other that. But at least half of us to do other things. 
But over the last 40 years, and I think a lot of the reason we call this liberal guilt radio is because the mm-hmm. Democratic Party, who used to be a party for the people, has taken up the professional managerial class. We have like yep. 25% of our workforce engaged in whether you call it being bureaucrats or technocrats, whatever you want to call it, basically just pushing papers around. And like you're saying, some of our work, we are trying to achieve something better. But if there was one, if there was only 5% of us doing this and the other 20% were being the artist, this, that, or the other thing that we wanted to support, the systems wouldn't all fall apart. It's this idea of it's, and so it's like, how do we slowly move back to that? And most people are also willing to do work. Like we don't all just want to sit around and like, and be like, Oh, I just want to fucking do whatever all day. Exactly. We want to do different types of work. And that's why debt Jubilee is so important. And even like, you know, cause it, and, and some of these other things might get us things like universal health and housing so that this, this poll to do one of the jobs that pays more so that we can make rent isn't so uh, forceful. That it's like, maybe I right. can't get a, a fancier house. For the rent you're working for. Right, because it hasn't gotten to the point where like, well, I could stay in this house and do just fine. Or I could get this other job and get a nicer house. It's like, if I don't get a better I'm job. I'm payment behind. Yeah, I'm more payment behind. I'm close to eviction or I get evicted or I got to move to another cheaper place and give up my relationships here. So it's like, we're not. And so it's getting back to, it's not saying that everyone can have the most glamorous mansion. It's saying that, you can pursue the arts. Your house isn't going to be as fancy as your solar company friend, neighbor, but you don't have to live in constant fear of eviction and falling behind and, and, yeah. and losing the ability to stay here. Think of it this way. In terms of what you were talking about earlier about adding value rather than capital to your to your community, um, what do you think is would be more valuable? What do you think is a better enterprise? Um, being the manager of a vineyard that has five acres of grapevines and employing people who are who are cultivating the grapes from these five acres of of uh, of um of grapevines so that the owner of this acreage can make a shit ton of money and all of their rich friends can drink a bunch of fancy wine where I'm making a good salary, but the people who are actually cultivating the grapes, doing the things, they're making a shitty hourly wage and they're always chasing after the uh, last month's rent. Do you think I'm adding more value and the workers are adding more value doing that? Or do you think I would add more value planting a, a thousand square feet of fruit in our neighborhood that we could eat? that could improve our oxygen that we could maybe sell or give to the, the block down the street. Is that thousand square feet adding more value? Am I adding more value growing a thousand square feet of fruit or am I adding more value um, harvesting five acres of fruit that is going to the super rich to entertain the super rich? Where am I adding more value? Where are the workers adding more value? Gotta ask the people. Power to the people. There you go. So I know, but to, to be honest, it's it's they can both add value, but what you don't want is that landlord class. Exactly. You, some people are going to want to do that. Others want to do that. People want wine. 
but you don't need that investor class. They don't provide anything. No, anything. we can grow the fucking vines for our wine too. If that's what we want, if we want to make orange juice, we'll grow oranges. If we want to make apple pie, we'll grow fucking apples. If we want to make wine, we'll grow fucking wine, but it'll be our choice in our community. So one of the hardest things we need to also break our uh, marriage to this ideal of private property. And I think that's very hard because even the most uh, liberal people don't want that here. Yeah. And it's I will a radical do. notion to even question the, uh, the downsides of private property. Because someone would say like, well, you know, the investor is the one, you know, putting money into the land. It's like, why do you need to put money into the land? Like that's completely arbitrary. The money can grow free. The money is unnecessary. Their ownership. Without the money, without someone owning it. You can build a house and put someone in the house on that land without someone. Yeah, all enclosures did was rape and pillage past people that were here and then uh, keep people out that have been historically marginalized. You don't need private property to achieve anything. It might have a little bit of, you know, there, there's some art, but it's like, it's a completely, uh, it's it's a separate issue. Uh, and so which one provides more value? They both provide value in different way. The only part that doesn't is having the investor uh, involved, especially when it's passed down generation to generation. Because one of my friends is the manager of a six acre wine farm. He works on it, he manages other people, and the owner of it did a lot of work in his day. He's old, he's in his seventies now, so he's not doing that much but he wants to transfer ownership to his son who jerks off six times a day uh, and doesn't do it doesn't set foot on that farm ever hasn't probably ever even touched a grape and drinks plenty of the wine but for some reason he's gonna take in all of the profits and, and live pretty and have millions of dollars he doesn't provide a single cent of value he actually takes away value so some of it so that's the only part where you could say it has no value or such little value that it's worth uh, breaking out of the system. And obviously it's gonna have consequences. Any transition is difficult. And you know, trying to get rid of certain classes of people is not gonna be easy. That's why they call them revolutions or things like that. Uh, but it's worth, it, it's worth talking about more and more so that at some point one generation can succeed in finally overthrowing the landlord class. There it is. Well, I think we should make that the last word. I think that sums up uh, everything you were talking about. So thanks for joining us. And uh, as we said before, uh, today's episode uh, is in honor of the memory of Isidore Shapiro. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Well, uh, thanks to everybody out there in the liberal guilt universe. Uh, we here at Handsome Headquarters are happy uh, to, to have the ears of all who are listening. Uh, thank you, Ben, for joining us today. And uh, we'll talk to you um, in about a week. Great. Yeah. See ya. Ciao.